0: Again, good morning everyone, good to see everyone. We are now going to look at the topic of do Muslims worship God as part of our apologetics series. You know, I'm I'm always kind of fascinated how, um, just the timing, how God works because I don't typically um, have a reason for why I do things in a certain order or why I do a certain book at a time, that kind of stuff. In fact, when it comes time to... Like with these, I just sort of put them in an order that I thought might make sense. and didn't really, it doesn't, in, you know, doesn't uh, come because of any pressing thing from the outside. But it was interesting, I got an email, or Amy got an email from Jennifer Witten yesterday. I don't know if any of you got it as well, or it might have been a Facebook post. Um, and she shared about how, how Walker's doing in the hospital, but also about a Muslim woman that they've been able to make a, sort of a friendship or a relationship with. She comes and she takes um, Walker to his treatments and stuff. And so they've been able to open up a discussion with her, and she's Muslim. And I thought it hey, was kind of interesting. This morning we we're talking about um, whether or not Muslims actually worship God. So the timing of it's kind of interesting. But I have some trivia questions for the kids. Alright? So get your thinking caps on. How many of you kids know what religion Muslims practice? Somebody give me a hand. Oh, I know Aiden knows the answer. Islam, Islam yeah. Muslims practice Islam. I was kind of, and I don't get it confused, but it's sometimes you want to use that interchangeably. You know, Christians, we think Christians practice Christianity. You think Muslims practice Muslimity, right? No, it doesn't work that way, but sometimes I get myself a little bit flustered with that. But um, I'm going to throw this all the way back. So, Muslims practice something called Islam. Anybody know who came up with that? Muhammad. Yeah, Muhammad. Muhammad actually came up with that. Okay? And, um, so the Islam, so Muslims practice Islam. Anybody remember the name of their holy book? What do they call their holy book? The Quran. Yeah, they actually call it the Quran, right? So Muslims practice Islam. They have their book called the Quran. What else do we have here? Um, what's the fastest growing religion in the world? Yeah. Evolution. No, 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 not evolution. Oh, damn. But that is a religion. It's kind of funny, because that actually, believe it or not, I would refer to evolution, it's a religion. It really is. What else? Fastest growing religion. It's Christianity. Okay. What's the second fastest? I kind of hear you guys whispering, you're afraid to say it a lot, because nobody wants to be wrong. Islam. Yeah, it's actually Islam is the second fastest growing religion in the world. There are t- t- some estimates 2.2 2 billion Christians. They claim there's about 1.8 billion muslims now here's what's interesting about i'm sorry i should let me let me back up let me back up a little bit i think i might have confused that the largest religion in the world is christianity the second largest religion is islam the fastest growing religion is actually islam okay right now about 32% of the world's population growth comes from muslims in fact in the next 60 years or so they expect the number of Muslims to grow by almost 70%, where they expect the number of Christians to only grow by about 30%. So they figure that sometime in the next probably 60 or 70 years, there will be more Muslims in the world than there are Christians. So it will be not only the fastest growing religion in the world, but probably the largest religion in the world. Now, much of that is centered over in the Middle East, obviously. Here in the United States, there's only about three and a half million Muslims, but there's almost a 100,000 Muslims that immigrate into the United States every year. So you can see over the next decade, that'll be another million Muslims. Within 20 years, that'll be another million Muslims. So you see that the population there is growing. And I would think that as it escalates in growth around the rest of the world, we'll probably see that here in the United States as well. So... Um, I do have in my notes for the parents um, and those of you older kids, there's a link to some Pew Research information on Islam and Muslims around the world. And it's actually fascinating stuff to read through. It's an interesting article to read through about Islam around the world. And that will be in my notes if you download them from the website. So, let's go ahead and talk about this. What is the challenge we face? We have to know the challenge that we're up against when it comes to Islam. Well, let's talk about this. Muslims claim to believe the same thing... As many Christians, okay? They say that they believe and they worship one true God. Anybody know what that means to worship one God? What's the big theological term we've bounced around in the last couple of weeks? But you know what it is? Monotheism. It means we believe in one God. Well, the Muslims claim to believe in one God. They believe Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary. They believe that he was a messenger of God. They believe that he was a good, moral person and a wise teacher. And they even they even believe that he performed miracles. So they have a certain amount of reverence for Jesus. They would say, "Yeah, we believe in Jesus." They also believe in Adam and Abraham and Moses, David, and the prophets, just like we do. They believe in heaven and hell, and they ultimately believe that God judges people and determines where they end up. Now, what do they refer to God as? Anybody know? How do they? What do they call God? Yeah, they refer to him as Allah. All right. Now, because of these claims made by the Muslims, many people, including many Christian denominations, actually believe that Muslims worship the same God as Jews and Christians. And so that's what I want to address today. Many believe that Judaism, Christianity, and Islam really ought to be grouped together as sort of one family. You all worship the same God is what they would claim. It's interesting, I come from a Catholic background, And um, this probably isn't going to mean much to you, but at times in the Catholics' past, they've had these councils, and there was one referred to as the Second Vatican Council, where they affirmed that Muslims, and this is directly from that statement, Muslims adore the one God, living and subsisting in himself, merciful and all-powerful, the creator of heaven and earth, who has spoken to men. They take pains to submit wholeheartedly to even the inscrutable decrees, just as Abraham with whom the faith of Islam takes pleasure in linking itself, submitted to God. Though they do not acknowledge Jesus as God, they revere him as a prophet. In other words, what they were saying is, we should consider Islam just as we do Christianity. That they worship God, they love God, and they revere Jesus. There's a term that's been floated around for the last um, couple of years. Um, some of you may have heard it, some of you may not. Anybody familiar with the term insider movement or the phrase insider movement? No? Dave kind of did. There's a term right now or a phrase insider movement that refers to um, a way of evangelizing or a way of reaching Muslims. It makes sense that since Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world and the second largest um, Religion or group of religious folks that Christian churches and Christians would look at them for evangelism, correct? I mean, it just makes sense. They're part of the world. Um, So, they've come up, and I say they, meaning many missionary organizations and churches and whatnot, have come up with a way that they think is an effective way to minister to Muslims. I'm going to share some of the things with you. And this is important for us here because it's something we're going to face. It's an approach, that refer, or an approach to evangelism that seeks to make the gospel attractive to Muslims. What can we do that will make it easier for us to share the gospel with Muslims by eliminating offensive aspects of the gospel, making it socially and culturally acceptable and easy to accept? That's the focus of the insider movement. How do we make it easy for Muslims to accept Christ? In fact, this form of evangelism actually dominates many of the U.S. missionary organizations today. It's the primary method of evangelism for many of the U.S. missionary organizations that that, um, evangelize Muslims. Let me give you some examples of what they do. Since referring to Jesus as the Son of God is actually offensive to Muslims, they avoid that term. Insiders claim we should refrain from referring to Jesus as the Son of God because it offends Muslims. The other thing they do is the Quran is actually given not just high regard by proponents of the insider movement, but it's considered partially inspired. Many missionary organizations now say, well, the Quran's not the word of God, but it is partially inspired by him. And the reason they do that is not to offend the Muslims. Oftentimes in these missionary organizations, they'll refer to Jesus as a prophet. Well, he is. But they sort of limit their use of or their, their phrases on how they refer to Jesus. Rather than referring to him as the Son of God, they refer to him as a prophet. And it's because that's the way the Muslims refer to Jesus. In addition to that, converts from Islam to Christ are encouraged to continue practicing many, if not all, of the traditions of Islam. They still refer to themselves as Muslims. In fact, they refer to themselves oftentimes as Muslim followers of Jesus or Muslim Christians. They claim to be both Muslims and Christian. Now, the problem with that is, Muslim is not a nationality. I can call myself an American Christian. Okay, Muslim is a religious designation. You cannot call yourself a Hindu Christian. You cannot call yourself a Buddhist Christian. You cannot call yourself a New Age Christian. Likewise, you can't say that I'm both Muslim and Christian because they are diametrically opposed. And that's what we're going to look at today. Now, why do I, why do I bring this up? We've got two fronts that we sort of are, are looking at right now. One is as you interact with Muslims, and we will begin to interact more and more with Muslims as the, as the population grows here in the United States. A great example would be Walker down at Children's. What's that? Walmart. Or at Walmart. Okay? There's a large Somalia population up in this area of the city. Okay? So that's one front where we need to understand what they think and what they believe and how it differs from Christianity so that we can talk with them, right? But then there's another front where even within the Christian church, there are many who are saying, well, they, they worship the same God we do, and we should allow them to continue being Muslims, and we should, we should encourage them by avoiding certain offensive things that the Bible says, and the certain things about Jesus. We should just avoid those things, because it will help us to witness the gospel to them. And oh, by the way, we will not offend them by, not, by referring to the Quran as not a holy book, and... All the so we have that front as well. In fact, there are some, and you'll, you might have heard the term, but um, some throw, throw it around, Chrislam, a combination of Christianity and Islam. Um, there are many Christian churches that believe we should partner with Islam organizations. So that's kind of what we're up against. Okay, But the real question is, um, do they actually believe the same things we do? Do they believe the same things we do? I'm going to look at three things. How Islam's view of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit do not align with the Bible. Okay, so we're going to look at those three things. We're going to look and, and, and ask, what do Muslims believe about God the Father? What do they believe about God the Son? And what do they believe about God the Holy Spirit? Let's look at God the Father to start with here. Muslims are monotheists. Okay, that means that they worship one God, right? But they actually reject the true nature of God in two ways. We're going to go ahead and we're going to look at that. First, they reject the true nature of God by denying the Trinity. Islam does not believe in a Trinity. Muslims do not believe in the Trinity. Who wants to help me out? What is the Trinity? Somebody other than Aiden, because I know Aiden knows all the answers to this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when we look at God, we refer to God as being one God in three persons. Okay? Now, I know it's a hard thing to get our head wrapped around. How can it be three God or one God and three persons? Um, there's some great diagrams out there that we could sort of look at, but the best way to think about it is one God is referring really to the uniqueness of God as, as separate from the pagan culture. The pagan culture that the Bible was, was sort of written in at that time, whether it was Old Testament or New, was this polytheistic environment where they had all these different gods. Okay, and those gods were oftentimes more like man than they were a real god. They would fight and they would battle and they would they would have relationships with people and all kinds of even Greek mythology. You know, they'd have half gods who are the products of of humans and gods had made it and all kinds of weirdness, right? So when when the Bible talks about God as being one God in three persons, what it means is that God is actually made up of. Jesus as a real person. The Holy Spirit as a real person. He's got a personality and and that. And then God as a real person. But they function as one in many respects. They have the same mind, the same will, the same desires, the same goals. And they're totally unique from any other God that's ever been imagined, okay? So the the, um, Muslims actually reject that, okay? Let's look at one. um, Just to help us understand what the Bible says. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Somebody... Go ahead and turn all of you turn to Deuteronomy six, verse four. We'll see what the Bible says. Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four. Does anybody want to read that for me? Can I get a volunteer? Yeah, go ahead. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Wanna read through verse five as well? all your soul and with all your strength. Yeah, now Deuteronomy 6:4 says the Lord your God is one God. So the Bible clearly defines God as basically being one God, okay? And in that particular passage again what it's, what it's stressing is the uniqueness of God among all the other pagan Canaanite gods that exist that, that they imagined. Okay, So it's really more about uniqueness of God. He stands alone, he stands separate because he's the only real God that exists. I'm going to read another passage to you. It's from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 4. I want you to listen to this. To you it was shown that you might know the Lord, he is God. There is no other beside him. Out of the heavens he let you hear his voice to discipline you, and on earth he let you see his great fire. And you heard his words from the midst of the fire, because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. And he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power, driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in and give you their land for an inheritance. And it is today, or as it is today... Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below there is no other. Now what's interesting about this particular passage is you notice it starts off by saying that it's just God. He's the only one. But then it goes into this long description of all the things that God has done. And all of those things that God has done is very different than the pagan gods around Israel. So the idea of God being one isn't just about, well, he's single. He's only one person. It's more about his uniqueness there's no other God anywhere like him. Okay, So that's really what the idea of oneness stresses. It doesn't mean that there's just one, you know, God himself and that Jesus and the Holy Spirit aren't God. The idea of oneness is not so much singularity as it is uniqueness. Does that make sense? Like I said, it's a hard concept to drive home. But it's that God is like no other God. Now, we know that no other gods really exist. It says he's the only one. But it's really stressing the point that God is so unique and so different than all the pagan gods that they had imagined. And one of the things that makes him unique is the fact that he is God in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now the Bible actually describes God in the plural. Do you guys know that? Not just... You're not going to find the term Trinity in the Bible, but you will find where God is referred to in the plural. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Genesis 1, verse 26. <laughs> Somebody want to read that for me as well? Who wants to read that for me? Katie? No? no? Anybody? Yeah, go ahead and read it for me. Do you notice, the, what was the word that was used there that makes us... Realize that God is not just one person. Yeah. It said, let us. Yeah. Notice that it says let us make. Also, the thing you can't see is that in the Hebrew, the word for make there is actually plural. In English, we kind of we don't always see that because um, you know I make, they make. It's the same word make, right? And what determines whether it's plural is the pronoun I or we make, right? In Hebrew, the word make actually has a form to it that tells you it's plural so God is referred to when God refers to making mankind he says let us do it who do you suppose the us is there anybody want to guess Colossians yeah go ahead yeah Colossians actually says that Jesus Christ everything was made through him and by him and for him and so the us there is a reference to the trinity in fact in the very beginning of Genesis it says that the spirit hovered over the waters right Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Anybody know what the Hebrew word for God is in that verse? It's a tricky one. It's actually a plural word. It's the word Elohim, which is the plural word for gods. If we were to literally translate that, it would say, In the beginning God's created. Do you know that God is often referred to in the plural Elohim? Part of it's considered to be what's called a plural of majesty, which is sort of a way of working or um, referring to somebody of high regard, majestic royalty. Um, sometimes they would refer to kings in the plural. Okay, it's used that way of God, not just because He's king, but also because He's one God and three persons. Look at uh, chapter 11, verse 17 of Genesis. Chapter 11. I'm sorry. Chapter 11, verse 7. Genesis 11, verse 7. Somebody read that for me. Yeah. Come, down there and the language not understand one speech. Yeah, so God's looking at going down to earth, okay? And what does he say? Come, let us, plural. Now, how many of you have seen that before? Anybody here? It's kind of interesting. I mean, it's interesting the things we sometimes maybe overlook, and we don't go, oh, wait a minute. It's, why does it say us? It's a reference to the Trinity. It's a reference to God being one in three. So, the, so there's other passages, like Isaiah chapter 6, where this is actually interesting. I'm going to just read this to you. Genesis 6, verses 8 through 9 says this. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And then it changes. Who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. He said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. The us there is actually a reference back to God as well. So in the one verse, God refers to himself in the singular and the plural, both. Who do you suppose the singular is? More specifically, God the Father. That's the I. The us is a reference to the group. Do you ever think about God up in heaven as he thinks about what he's doing? Think about this, as he's sitting up in heaven and he's looking down at this void and he's ready to make all of creation. Do you think he had a discussion with Jesus and the Holy Spirit? Most likely. When I was in seminary, we debated this really stupid, stupid idea. It's called lapsarianism. Lapsarianism is a stupid theological term to describe the order that God thought about things before he did them. And there are things called supra-lapsarianism and super-lapsarianism and then there's just lapsarianism. It all has to do about what order God thought about things and what kind of discussion he had with Jesus and the Holy Spirit before he did it. You know why it's a stupid discussion? Because we don't know. But that's what seminarians and theologians do. They come up with things to discuss that take up lots of their time sometimes and there's no good, solid answers for it. But... And congressman too it's a lot like that yeah so what's what's my point in this well my point is that it's pretty clear that the bible describes god in the plural it describes god as being three in one and we'll look at next week jesus being god and that proposes a very interesting challenge to us because if Islam says God is not one God in three persons. If Islam says, no, it's just God the Father. He's the only God. Jesus is not God. Then we have a problem, don't we? Because we don't believe the same things they do. They deny at least one aspect of God the Father. Now, there's a second area that they basically reject the nature of God, the true nature of Him. And this one, I think, is almost as important. They actually deny the personal, relational nature of God. You guys remember that they refer to God as Allah. The thing we may not know, or you may not know, is that Allah wasn't invented, the name wasn't invented by Muhammad. Allah was actually the name of a pagan god that was worshipped at Mecca long before Muhammad actually borrowed the term. And what's interesting about this god is this god was very distant, somewhat cruel, could not interact with human beings. Allah of the Quran is actually very similar to that. He's a distant God who reveals his will, but he doesn't reveal much else about himself. He's impersonal. He's too holy to have a relationship with human beings. Does that sound like the God of our Bible? What's interesting is that that's often the way pagan gods are. Is they're these mean, overbearing, um, puppet masters in some respects. You know, look at the Greek gods. How many of you have ever studied Greek mythology? You know, they have Zeus and all these weird gods and stuff, and they're angry and sinful and all that, but they're also somewhat very distant with, with human beings in some respects. The God of the Bible is very different than that. The God of the Bible is a very personal God. He's full of love for us. He can't just be known, but he desires for us to know him. Does he not? Somebody turn to Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23. Somebody want to read that for me? Yeah. Go ahead and read it out loud for us. The days are coming, the Lord's. Declaration when it will no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites from the land of Egypt. Is that Jeremiah twenty-three, seven? Yeah? Oh, it is? Okay. I might have given you the wrong the wrong citation, but let me read this for you. I will give him a heart to know me, for I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. Jeremiah um, reminds us that God wants to give us a heart to actually know Him, to be in a relationship with Him. I'm going to read from John chapter one verse four, or John chapter. I'm sorry, First John chapter four. Go ahead and turn there with me. First John four. I'm going to read a fairly long passage here, and I want you to pay attention to something. As I read this passage, I want you to reflect on how many times God' love for us is actually mentioned, and that we abide in Him as His Spirit fellowships with us. First John chapter four, verses seven through nine. loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us His Spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected within us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also we are in this world. Therefore... There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. Don't you catch that? How many times does that passage tell us that God loves us, that He abides in us, that we abide in Him, that His Spirit has been given to us, that He sent His Son Jesus to save the world? Does that sound like a distant God who doesn't want anything to do with human beings? No. What's interesting is the Quran sort of teaches that God that Allah has to sort of remain somewhat separate from human beings. But what Christianity teaches is that God is a God who is desirous to interact with us. He wants to fellowship with us. He took his son, actually had him suspend some of his attributes of deity, come to earth as a human being and dwell human flesh, walk on this earth for 30 some odd years interacting with sinful people like us, all because he desires to fix the broken relationship that we have with him. Does that sound like a God that's personal? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the problems with Islam is that it teaches that no, God is rather distant. He doesn't really want to interact with us. He's not really interested in that personal relationship. Total opposite. In fact, the reason we exist is because God is a relational being. And in order for God to be a relational being, guess what he had to do? He created somebody to have a relationship with. And that happens to be us. And what's interesting about that is he knew darn well that when he did that, we would fall, we would stumble, and it would cost him a horrific price to fix that relationship so that he could be in fellowship with us. Okay, So, I've just mentioned two things here. There's a lot of other differences between Allah and the God of the Bible. But two of the most significant ones, I think, here, are that they deny his true nature, who he really is, one God and three persons. But then they also deny the fact that he's a personal God. There's no need to have a personal relationship with him. It's more a sort of a master-slave relationship. He sets the rules, and as long as you obey the rules, you're okay. But really, you don't interact. You know, I mean, to use a crude example, you know, I just recently watched the story about a, a black preacher from back in the, was it 17 or 18, 1700s? Um, I don't remember what his name was, but he was a, a famous black preacher. He was manipulated to preach to black slaves to get them to submit to their masters, um, and then he ultimately rose up and killed a bunch of white folks in kind of a rebellion. Um, Nate, what was his name? Ah, I can't remember off the top of my head. But anyway, um, just kind of watching this and seeing how the slaves were treated, you know, some families allowed slaves into their homes, but many did not. They had to be out in the barns or sleep where they slept. They had to maintain this distance, you know. Slaves, when you would walk up to them, they would have to drop their eyes down and look at the ground because they weren't considered equals. You know, God doesn't expect us to drop our eyes and look at the ground. Now, we walk into his presence. You look at Isaiah. You know, walks in. What does he do? You know, on the ground. But when we interacted with Jesus Christ as he was here, didn't expect that. You know? In fact, the great example of that is he washes Peter's feet. You know? Stinky, dirty feet. God is a God who wants to interact and have fellowship with us. That is not the God of Islam. Okay? So do they worship the same God we do? No. No. Not according to that. Let's look at the second area. What do they believe about Jesus? We've already talked about this a little bit. Kids, how did we how do the how do the Muslims refer to Jesus again based on what we've said already? They don't refer to him as the Son of God. What do they call him? they refer to him as a prophet you know so they have a certain amount of respect for him he's a good wise teacher and yeah they believe in him meaning they think he was a real individual but just like with God there are two critical areas where they ultimately reject who he is the first one is they reject the deity of Christ anybody want to tell me what that word deity means is it (laughs) like a Well, they use it to refer to fake gods, yeah. But deity actually just is a reference to God. So when I say that they deny or they reject the deity of Christ, what I'm saying is that they don't believe Jesus is God. Remember, they don't like, in fact, they're offended if you refer to Jesus as the Son of God. It's an offensive term. So they reject the deity of Christ. Um, next week we're going to spend a lot more time on this. Next week's topic is actually, was Jesus God? And we're going to spend a lot of time, I think there's seven or eight proofs that I'll give you that show that Jesus is exactly what he said. But we're going to only look at three. They're a little bit different than the ones from next week. But I'm going to share three things with you that I believe show us, indeed, that Jesus Christ was God. Let's look at the first one. The first proof, there are explicit statements in the Bible regarding Jesus' deity. The Bible states explicitly that Jesus himself was deity. Look at Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23 says this. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and she shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Before you read on, what does Emmanuel mean, guys? God is with us. Yeah, God is with us. Well, who's the God it's referring to there? You shall call his name Emmanuel. So who's his? Who's him? That's Jesus, right? So this verse tells us that Jesus Christ is God with us. Okay? So the Bible says Jesus, this child, is actually God. How about turning to John chapter 1, verse 1? We'll look at two verses there. John 1 Verse 1 and John 1, verse 14. Let me read verse 1 for you. The very first sentence of the Gospel of John defines this for us. It says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now who's the Word there? Well, it refers to the Word of God, but, yeah, it's actually Jesus. We know that because look down at verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, which member of the Trinity became flesh? Yeah, it was Jesus. God the Father didn't, God the Holy Spirit didn't, but God the Son did. Now there are other passages, you have those in your notes, Colossians chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8, that tell us that all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ. So the first proof that Jesus is the Son of God is that the Bible tells us specifically that Jesus was God. A second proof is that Jesus himself claimed to be God. This is something you oftentimes hear from people say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, I don't know what book they're reading. John chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. Go ahead and turn there. John chapter 5, verses 17 through 18. It says this, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, meaning working on their Saturday, but also was calling God his own Father, then look at the phrase there, making himself equal with God. What does that mean? The Jews understood that Jesus was making himself God. So I don't know how today we can say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God when the Jews of his day said he's claiming to be God. In fact, John chapter 8, just a few few chapters later, John chapter 8, verse 58, go ahead and turn there. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Why is that important? Because I am is the name that God used when he spoke to Moses in the bush. You know what that tells us? Who was speaking to Moses in the bush? Was it God the Father? No, it was God the Son. And we know that partly because part of Jesus's function and role, each one... Each member of the Trinity has a function and a role. Jesus' function is to make the Father known to us. And he did that in the Old Testament. All of the Old Testament theophanies where God appears in physical form, that's God the Son actually appearing to make him known. When he was in the burning bush, that was Christ. That was the second member of the Trinity speaking to Moses. But you notice what happened there in verse 58 of John chapter 8. Therefore they, the Jews, picked up stones to throw at him. Why did they do that? Because he had just claimed to be God. Now there's other, you see the other verses in there as well. There are other places where Jesus claims to be equal to the Father. So he did claim to be God. There's no question about that in the Bible. So again, we have a problem with this because Islam rejects that. How about the third proof? The last one we'll look at here briefly is that the disciples believed he was God. So not only did the Bible state explore does the Bible state explicitly that Jesus was God, not only did Jesus himself claim to be God, but the disciples said, Yeah, he's God. That's our third proof. Turn to John chapter 20, verse 27 and 28. John chapter 20, verse 27 and 28. We have the story of Thomas. Who wants to read that one for me? Anybody want to read that little story of Thomas there for me? Verses 27 and 28. Yeah, Katie. Real loud. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe." Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Thomas calls him his God. Now, as a Jew, that would have been highly offensive unless he believed it was ultimately true. And notice, nobody in that room picked up stones to stone Thomas for committing blasphemy by declaring Jesus to be God. It's because they believed that Jesus was exactly who he said he was, was. He was God. I'll read Matthew 14 to you. And those who were in the boat, remember that, where Jesus calmed the seas? Those who were in the boat... Looked at him and said, You certainly are God's Son. Now that was also an offensive thing, but because when the Jews heard Jesus refer to himself as the Son of God, they recognized exactly what he meant. That he was equal to God, that he was God. And so in the boat the disciples referred to him there as well. There's a couple other places in the scripture, Second Peter one and Titus chapter two, where it says it refers to Jesus as our God and Savior. And the important thing there is not just our Savior, but our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So We have these proofs, and like I said, next week we'll get to probably seven or eight, I think it is, more of them demonstrating that Jesus Christ was exactly who he claimed to be, which was God. And so the problem we face here is when you look at Islam and they say, well, we believe in Jesus. You have to understand what they mean. Well, they believe that Jesus was a real person. They believe he did some miracles. They believe he was a good person, wise and moral. But what they absolutely reject is who he really was. He wasn't God, he wasn't God's son. They even reject the fact that he was Savior. Okay? So, do they worship the same God we do? Not if they reject Christ. The last thing we'll look at here is that they also reject the concept, or I'm sorry, the, the second thing we'll look at regarding Christ himself and what they reject is that they reject him as Savior. I kind of hinted at that, at that already. Does anybody remember from last week how Muslims are saved? Everybody remember that yeah exactly yeah they have the you know they have their their, um, their pillars that they have to go through and it basically works the best way to describe it is is sort of this the Quran says that they are purely at the mercy of Allah that Allah ultimately determines their salvation in fact all Muslims go to hell first and then Allah determines where they ultimately go after that and so it says that in one location, that it has nothing to do with you, it's purely at the whims of Allah. And then in another place, it says, well, you got to perform good works. And if you perform good works, you obey the Quran, you pray, you go through the, the pillars, then you can secure your works. So it's, it contradicts itself. So most Muslims will tell you they can't ultimately know what happens when they die, because There's no assurance of salvation. It's really nothing more than just a works-based, because it's purely based upon them ultimately. And so they reject the idea that Jesus Christ himself is a Savior because they don't need a Savior. Nobody can save you. It's all up to Allah, the great puppet master. They also claim that Jesus wasn't crucified. They believe that the crucifixion story was either made up or that there was only an image of Jesus on the cross. Others believe that he was nailed to the cross, but that God ultimately somehow saved him before he died. So there's all these different understandings of the crucifixion. But what they ultimately claim is that Jesus Christ didn't die. He wasn't the Savior. He wasn't God. So they gen- they deny these aspects of Christ. You'll see in your notes there, there are some passages there. I won't go into them here, because I don't think we probably struggle with that. I think everyone in, everyone here believes that Jesus was our Savior. So I won't spend a lot of time on those passages just for the time of sake this morning. You've got them in your notes there. But So if, if they're going to deny that Jesus Christ is God, and if they're going to deny that he's Savior, we have nothing in common, do we? They're not part of our family, if you will. At least with Judaism, we know we worship the same God the Father. We have some of that in common. But with Muslims, we we don't have that in common. Because their view of God is very different. Their view of Jesus is very different. Lastly, we'll just touch on this the Holy Spirit. How do they view the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit is actually used a number of times in the Quran, but most Muslims believe that the Holy Spirit was simply the Archangel Gabriel, not part of the Trinity, not God, was just simply an angel. So they deny the deity of the Holy Spirit as well. They do not believe that he was God. I'm going to give you three proofs why the Holy Spirit is God as well. If you look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Matthew 28, verse 19, the biggest proof of the Holy Spirit being God is the way that the Bible couples God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit together as a group. If you look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, anybody remember what we refer to this verse as? The great what? Remember? Call it the great commission. Okay, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So you have the grouping of the Holy Spirit, God the Father and God the Son. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 4 through 6. We see this same grouping of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4-6. through 6. Listen to this. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, and the same Lord, that's Christ. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God, who works all things in all persons. So in that one verse again, we have the Holy Spirit operating with the Lord, which is Christ operating, and then God the Father operating. Again, you have the Holy Spirit put into the same group. And you find this throughout the scriptures. You'll see there's some other passages there in your notes where you'll find that, again, it's fairly frequent that the Holy Spirit is mentioned alongside God the Father and God the Son. That's a first proof that the Holy Spirit is God. A second proof is that they're often spoken of interchangeably in the Bible. I'm going to just read you some of these things again for for time's sake. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 15 and 17. Listen to this. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write on them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Did you catch that? It says that the Holy Spirit testifies to us. The Holy Spirit says these things, but then the text actually says that it's the Lord speaking. Does that make sense. That only makes sense if the Holy Spirit is God. And so, what you'll find is that oftentimes in the Old Testament and the New, the word Holy Spirit and God will be interchangeable. Okay, meaning that the Holy Spirit is God. In other words, the the um, when the Holy Spirit speaks on behalf of God the Father and God the Son, it's because he's part of the Trinity. Peter, a little bit later, uh, chapter 5 of of Acts, says this. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? Remember that story? Ananias, he saw the disciples selling all their stuff, and he thought, man, I can get in good with these folks. So I'll, I'll sell a little bit of my land and tell them I sold it all. And he goes and he presents it to the disciples and he looks good. But Peter and the rest knew exactly what was going on. And so Peter looks at Ananias and he says, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? But if you read on, it says in verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to who? Notice he says there, lied to God. Well, if he's lying to the Holy Spirit, but then he says, well, you're lying to God, what does that make the Holy Spirit? One and the same. I won't go through the rest of those verses there. Again, you have them in your notes. But the Holy Spirit is used interchangeably with God in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. The last proof I'll mention here is that the Holy Spirit speaks and acts as God. Okay, He speaks and he acts as God. Listen to Acts chapter 13, verses 2 through 4. While they were ministering, that's the apostles, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed and, and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and there they sailed to the Cyprus. Later in Acts chapter 20, it says, Be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock, Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. One last verse, Acts chapter 16. They passed through two different regions, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to um, Mysia, they were trying to get into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Do you notice there the Spirit of Jesus is linked to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit? But in each one of these verses, the Holy Spirit is acting as God, directing the disciples, preventing them from doing certain things, encouraging them to do something else. And so we have the Holy Spirit acting on behalf of God. So again, just a handful of proofs here. The Bible makes it really clear that the Holy Spirit is God. There's no question about that. So the Muslims' view of the Holy Spirit as being nothing more than Gabriel, not being part of God, is in direct contrast to what the Bible says. So, what do we have here? the Muslims will claim that they believe in God, will claim that they believe in Jesus. We have some Christian organizations now that are saying, yeah, they, you know, they, they worship the same God we do. And they have a high regard for Jesus. And their Quran is partially inspired, maybe not as, as inspired as the Bible. But Muhammad was a good person, and he was a prophet. And so the Quran, there's some good things in the Quran. In fact, they refer to Isa in the Quran, which is Jesus. A very different Jesus than what we have in the Bible. So when you really look at the evidence, when you know the truth, Islam is not the same as Christianity. It's very, very different. Now, what does that allow us to do? Well, if we understand that, um, it makes us better ministers, for one helps us understand where they're coming from, what they understand. So we're in, when we engage in a conversation with a Muslim and he says, I worship God too, you know that it's not the same God that we worship. Okay? When they say, well, we believe in Jesus, he was a great prophet, and you nod your head and say, yeah, he was a great prophet, you have to understand what they mean by that, and that it's not the same Jesus we actually worship here. So the question is, how can we actually engage with them? We can use some of this information, I think, to have conversation with them, I've got some examples there of how you might talk to them under knowing how to respond. That's Mostly, I don't intend to to go through this in great depth, usually with us, but um, they're there for you to debate and dialogue, but I'll at least touch just on one of them briefly here. What if a Muslim says to you, um, or somebody says to you, not necessarily a Muslim, that, well, Muslims worship God, it's the same God, but it's just somebody by a different name. They just refer to him as Allah, we refer to him as somebody else. Well, what might you actually do with that? Well, some of the things that we pointed out here, you might do something like this. Well, yeah, Muslims share some of the same values or some of the same beliefs that Christians do, but Allah is very different from the God that I worship, the God of the Bible. The Bible teaches that God is one God in three persons. The Muslims don't believe that. I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that the Holy Spirit is God. So I believe that God is one God in three persons. And you have some scripture passages there that you can actually quote with them. So you can say, well, yeah, they say they worship God, but it's not the same God that I worship because they deny who my God really is. You might also then say, well, another way that Allah differs from God of the Bible is that my God is very relational. He loves us. He interacts with us. He sent his son to die for us. He desperately desires a relationship, a personal relationship with me. And that's linked directly to my salvation. Allah isn't that way. Allah keeps us distant, distance. So consider some of those things. Look at the other examples there. Like I said, I encourage you to maybe even go through the dialogues, create your own dialogues, ask the same you know ask your, yourselves questions. What if a Muslim says this or what if another Christian says this? Another thing you can actually do with this, which is not something I put in the notes, but I've had some conversation with people from the insider movement that try to tell me, that I shouldn't use phrases like "Jesus as the Son of God" when I talk to Muslims. And my response has been, "But if I don't tell them the truth, that they, there's no hope. If they don't accept Jesus as the Son of God, there's no hope for their salvation." Yeah, but but you're going to offend them if you do that. Or should they be allowed to continue practicing all the Muslim practices, which are highly offensive to God? You know, it allows us to engage in some conversation with them. So I'll go ahead and I'll leave you with that. The simple answer to the question, do Muslims worship God? I would have to say, no, they don't. Are they pious? Are they religious? Um, yes. Are they bad people? Because, you know what, they're like us. They're like every other person on the planet, desperately in need of a savior. Um, and so we need to understand where they're at.